Hello, welcome to Raw Stories, the fortnightly podcast where I share new writing, whether it's ready or not. My name is Caroline Hardman, and this week's story is The Department of Unrequited Love. Queenie Brown had been falling in and out of love for as long as anyone could remember. Although she hadn't so much been falling in and out of love as falling in and even further in love, repeatedly. But don't be too envious. There were several men who Queenie had at one time or another fallen in love with, and while there is no need to dwell on who they were or how she met them, it is important to know that there was one thing they all had in common. None of them loved her back. And so, one day, Queenie decided to stop. Just stop. It wasn't quite that simple, of course, because these things never are, and it was Queenie's niece Amanda who was responsible. Queenie's tendency towards love of the unrequited type meant that she'd never been a mother, and the truth was that now she probably never would be. She was, however, an excellent aunt, to three teenage nephews and one razor-sharp eight-year-old niece, with whom Queenie had a regular Tuesday afternoon tea date. It was on one of those Tuesday afternoons that Amanda asked the question. What are you so sad about, Aunt Queenie? That was all it took. Queenie told her niece that she was absolutely fine and then quickly changed the subject, passing a plate of fairy cakes as an extra precaution. But the next morning, when Queenie looked in the mirror, she saw something. Somehow, ever so gradually... All of those brief moments of longing, the tiny pinpricks of regret, the times she'd let herself wonder, what if, or wouldn't it be nice to, had formed themselves into something bigger. A thin veil of sadness, which had wrapped itself around her like a cobweb, so lightly and delicately that only an eight-year-old, and a fairly astute one at that, would notice. Queenie saw it that morning in the mirror, and once it had been seen, she couldn't unsee it. She certainly tried, that morning, and the next, and for several mornings after that. But no matter how many times she tossed her head, forced a smile, and gritted her teeth ever so slightly before she looked again, it was still there. You stupid, stupid woman, she eventually whispered to her reflection on one of the mornings, and sadly shook her head. Queenie took to her bed for three days after that. She let her phone battery go flat and took the landline off the hook in case anyone tried to phone her or, even worse, no one tried to call at all. She didn't sleep. She didn't cry. She just existed. And then, after three days, she got up, made herself a cheese sandwich and got on with her life. It's a terrible cliché to say that time is a great healer, But that's the annoying thing about terrible clichés, they're almost always true. So yes, it turns out that time is a great healer, and that for Queenie, three and a half days was exactly how much time it took. Queenie didn't just get on with life, she embraced it. Love affairs, even the one-sided ones, do take up quite a lot of time, and Queenie filled the spare hours she'd acquired with activity. 
She roared through university courses and night classes and signed up for every volunteer programme she could find. She trained for a marathon and then a triathlon and then an ultramarathon, which she won in record time. She wrote a novel and the more difficult second novel and then her first novel was optioned for a film, so she wrote a screenplay too, and then she directed the film. She qualified as a master of wine in a cordon bleu chef and even ran a successful catering business for a while before she got bored and sold it at a tidy profit. She grew vegetables. She learned the piano and the guitar and for a brief period the euphonium until she realised that euphonium players are not often in demand. She played a lot of golf and a bit of poker and Snow White in the local dramatic society's Christmas pantomime. She started a second catering company, which was even more successful than the first. And she tried not to look in the mirror too often, just in case. Between all of this, she kept her regular afternoon tea appointment with her niece, who was now nearly a teen. You're very busy, Aunt Queenie, Amanda sometimes said on these occasions. Hmm, Queenie would always reply and then quickly pass her niece another homemade scone. Queenie's life probably would have gone on like this forever, had it not been for a knock on her door one morning. She put down the scientific paper she was reviewing, turned down a batch of blackberry jam bubbling on her stovetop, and padded down the hallway to open the door. The two men on her doorstep were both carrying clipboards. One was short, and the other were quite tall, and the taller man wore along with his ill-fitting suit, a curious expression of relief. "'You're still here!' he exclaimed as she opened the door. "'See, I told you she was fine,' his well-tailored companion snapped. Queenie frowned. "'Can I help you, gentlemen?' she asked. There was an awkward silence as the two men exchanged what anyone else might call a series of looks, but which Queenie, who had recently taken an open university course in body language, realised was an entire conversation. Now what do we do? the tall man asked. How should I know? We could just tell her. We can't tell her that. It's against the rules. Well, we have to tell her something. The targets. The short man sighed. Yes, I know about the targets. Well, fine, go on then. What am I supposed to tell her exactly? Don't ask me, scowled the short man. I told you this was a bad idea. Eventually, Queenie could stand the silence no more. I really don't have all day, she said, so unless there's something you're here for... I do apologise, said the short man as Queenie began to close the door. We... He played with his cufflinks as he searched for the right words and then glared as his companion seized the opportunity to interrupt. It's so lovely to finally meet you, the tall man said, shaking Queenie's hand. We're Small and Symington from the Department of... We're just here doing a routine check-up, the short man interrupted, for the department and now that we're here and we've seen that you're fine, we'll be on our way. So sorry to have bothered you. The two men gathered themselves to leave but Queenie was now curious. A check-up? I'm sorry, where did you say you were from? 
The short man shuffled a bit and stared at his shoes, while the tall man turned a delicate shade of pink. Well, um, we can't say, I'm afraid, he muttered. He turned to look at his companion, eyes pleading, but the shorter man shook his head. So, you can't tell me where you work, but you can tell me your names? Simington and Small, wasn't it? There was more shoe staring, and the tall man turned a deeper shade of pink. We all use names, not job titles, he said. It's meant to make us seem less bureaucratic. He gave an apologetic smile and then turned to his companion. Please, Queenie heard him whisper. She's our only chance. The small man puffed out his cheeks. Very well, he muttered, but I don't like it one bit. He turned to Queenie. I suppose we do owe you an explanation, Miss Brown. However, I think it would be better to have this conversation in the office. Would you come with us? Queenie looked at the two men. There was something in the taller one's eyes which she liked. He almost reminded her of... No, she was not going to think about things like that, she sternly reminded herself. Please come, the man said. It's not far, and we could really do with your help. All right, Queenie heard herself say. As she shut the front door, her eyes caught the calendar in the hallway. But it's a Tuesday, she added. I'll need to be back in time for tea. Queenie followed the men down the road and then into the high street and under the railway bridge where she was slightly surprised to see for what she was fairly sure was the first time, a pale blue door. One of the men unlocked it and ushered her inside. The vaulted ceiling above her head was damp and the walls, which were stained with brown murky streaks, even damper. There was a definite dripping sound. I'll put the kettle on, the tall man said and wandered off. The shorter man gestured for Queenie to sit down, but there weren't any chairs, so she perched on a filing cabinet and waited for him to say something. He did not. So, this department of yours, Queenie finally said, these are its headquarters? Sort of. It hasn't always been like this, the short man said. It used to be more... His voice trailed off and Queenie followed his eyes towards a bright yellow door in the far corner of the room. Such cheery paintwork seemed quite out of place among the gloom and damp, and the door almost gave off a light of its own. Where am I exactly? Queenie asked. The man looked at her evenly. Haven't you worked it out yet, Miss Brown? This is the Department of Unrequited Love. A tiny wave of alarm cursed through Queenie as those words and the ramifications of them hung in the air. As you may recall, though, one of the hobbies she'd taken up in her spare time was poker, and it was something which had come quite naturally to her. Queenie Brown, as it turned out, could bluff with the best of them. I beg your pardon, she asked. The DUL, we sometimes call it. The Department of Unrequited Love. I see, said Queenie. Her lack of reaction seemed to catch the man off guard. And I'm here because... Ah, well, he said, 
we're aware that you've had some experience of love. Well, yes, but more the kind of love we're interested in. Before Queenie could respond, the taller man appeared with a tray of steaming mugs in his hands. Tea's made, he said cheerfully. Why don't we sit in there, he added, pointing towards the yellow door. It'll be much more comfortable. Do you have a bathroom I could use first? Queenie asked. She stood up, her lips pressed tightly together. It was only when she was safely inside the tiny room that Queenie let herself think about what the man had said. She closed her eyes and stood in front of the mirror, holding onto the sink to steady herself. As she gripped the porcelain tightly, shame and embarrassment flooded through her. Those feelings had been hers. She liked the fact that they were hers, and only hers, and that she didn't have to share them with anyone else. She'd chosen not to share them. And now these men, these strange little men, they knew about them. Knew about her. The embarrassment gradually turned to anger as it dawned on her. How did they know? And what business was it of theirs? She fumbled her way out of the tiny bathroom and headed towards the front door. You're not leaving already, a voice called behind her. I'm afraid I am, she replied briskly. Oh, said the voice, it's just... Well, I've made your tea now, it seems a shame to waste it. Queenie sighed and silently cursed the online etiquette course she'd recently taken. (sighs) Very well, she said. Five minutes, but that really is all I can spare. Grand, said the tall man. Follow me. We thought it might be easier to have our conversation in the storeroom. Queenie, shaking her head, had no choice but to follow him towards and then through the yellow door. Something happened when Queenie entered that room. It suddenly felt like she was floating and being read her favourite childhood story and drinking hot chocolate all at once. The thing she noticed most of all, though, was the smell. An extraordinary mix of cigar smoke, the brand her dad had liked, and Earl Grey tea was the faint, with the faintest hint of salt. Like the ocean, Queenie realised, smiling at the memory of childhood holidays. She breathed in again. Soil, cinnamon toast, and a hint of strawberries, or were they raspberries? The anger which had formed knots in her shoulders seemed to disappear as she breathed in deeply and took it all in. The tall man saw this and smiled. It's wonderful, isn't it? He said. Everyone smells it differently. Mine's lasagna, mainly. With lots of garlic, like my grandma used to make. Make yourself comfortable, his companion said, pointing to one of the soft sofas scattered across the room. It would be hard to do anything else here, Queenie thought as she sank into one of them. The air was warm but not stuffy, and although, apart from the sofas, this room was almost as sparsely furnished as the rest of the building, that didn't seem to matter. It felt welcoming and safe and lived in. Along the far wall was a row of storage tanks, 
connected by transparent pipes, which made a gentle humming sound. Far from ruining the ambience of the place, the pipes and tanks seemed to blend in and give the room an energy of its own. This is lovely, said Queenie. The whole place used to be like this, the short man said. It's our storage facility, you see, he added, pointing to the tanks. We don't have much use for the rest of the space anymore. Just one room is fairly adequate for our needs. So, what happened? asked Queenie, a little afraid of what the answer to that question might be. We were hoping you could tell us. I'm still not entirely sure I understand, Queenie said slowly. She felt her guard drop a little. It didn't seem to matter, though, somehow, here in this room. What is it you do here, exactly? The short man leaned forward. Well, he began, and then paused, searching for the right words. When you fall in love in the traditional sense, with someone who... How can I put this? Knows you exist, offered Queenie wryly. The man smiled gently, and for that Queenie was grateful. When you're in love with someone who loves you back, he continued, everything just sort of gets sucked up. Your feelings get absorbed by them and theirs get absorbed by you. It all balances out. But sometimes, as was the case in your situations, there's an excess, an imbalance as it were. I see, said Queenie, who didn't yet, not really. Well, all of that excess love has to go somewhere, and that's our job. We track it, we collect it, we process it, and we redistribute it. You redistribute it? How on earth does that work? asked Queenie. Oh, there are core criteria, targets, hard decisions to make, the normal sort of stuff. It's much the same with the management of any centrally controlled but limited resource, I expect. There are a lot of forms to fill in. Forms, repeated Queenie weakly, remembering the filing cabinet she'd used as a seat. Paperwork hadn't been quite what she meant when she asked the question. So, out there you... There are records? Oh yes, I can show you if you like. I mean, you'd normally have to fill in a Freedom of Information request, but given that you're already here... No, no, it's fine, Queenie said, a little too quickly, and took a sip of her tea. She certainly didn't need any reminders. Oh, don't worry, the man said, seeming to have realised her discomfort. We don't keep records of where it comes from. We know the vague details, obviously, but we're not too concerned with those. No, these are the records of where it goes. Queenie was flustered now, but it doesn't go anywhere, it can't. I mean, it's not real, is it? Not real, asked the man, pointing at the tanks and the pipes. But of course it's real. Those are full of the stuff. This whole place was once, added the tall man, who was leaning against one of the tanks. Queenie had almost forgotten he was there. When we were busier. But it's not. Queenie paused. We weren't. She found herself unable to continue and fell silent. 
Some silences are uncomfortable. But as Queenie sat back, listening to the gentle bubbling sound of the tanks and pipes, and drawing comfort from her surroundings, she realised that this was not one of them. It was all foolish, she eventually whispered quietly, unable to meet either of the men's eyes. It, it wasn't real. Well, I don't know about that, said the short man, squeezing Queenie's hand. All I know is that thanks to you, we've been able to help an extraordinary number of people. Queenie swallowed and looked at him. Help them how? she finally asked in a small voice. Loving people can be difficult sometimes, Miss Brown. You must know that more than anyone. From time to time, everyone needs a bit of help, a little extra something to draw on, especially in those moments when it gets difficult. And, thanks to people like you, that's what we can provide. Until recently, the tall man stood up and stretched his legs before joining them both on the sofa. You've always made our job very easy, he said, but for the last few years, nothing. Our stocks have dwindled. We've not hit our targets for goodness knows how many months, Queenie swallowed. We're working all hours just to cover the bare minimum, the man continued, ignoring the look his companion gave him. My wife wants to start a family soon, but... As he kept talking, muttering about targets and quantities, Queenie thought about the men she'd loved. Men she'd not let herself think about for a long time. Look, Mr Symington, she said, I'd like to be able to. I'm Symington, actually, said the short man. Oh, said Queenie, I'm sorry, I just assumed. Everyone does, he said glumly. Queenie felt a sudden sympathy for the shorter man. He seemed softer in this room, somehow. Less prickly. Mr Symington, Mr Small, she said, I know you said you wanted my help, and I'd like to be able... Oh, no, no, it's nothing like that, blustered Mr Symington. We can't ask you for it. Although, said Mr Small. Even so, continued Queenie, I'd like to be able to help you, I really would, but... She looked at the pipes and the two men. I don't know what's in there, she said, and I don't understand what it is you think you're doing with it, but the truth is I do think I made the right decision. Stopping has freed up headspace. It's given me time for... She paused, and the silence which followed was one of the awkward ones. I mean... I make my own jam now, she finally offered. There was another, even more awkward silence. Homemade jam is very nice, Mr Symington eventually said. Do you ever enter it in competitions? Queenie nodded. I don't suppose. You don't meet many men at these jam-making competitions, do you? Mr Small ventured. Oh, ladies, for that matter, he added hastily. I mean, whatever, you know, anyone, anyone you might. Queenie smiled. Not often. But then, it's not quite that simple, is it? I mean, I can't just talk myself into being in love. It doesn't work that way. I suppose you're right, Mr Small said glumly. I just thought I'd ask. Mr Symington rolled his eyes at Mr Small, although they contained a glimmer of kindness. We really shouldn't have bothered you with all of this, Miss Brown. It's against all sorts of regulations. I can only apologise. Can I pour you some more tea at least? He asked, pointing at Queenie's empty cup. 
that's kind of you, but I really must be getting back, Queenie said, looking at the time. My niece is due at three. I'll see myself out. She rose to her feet and picked up her handbag, a little reluctantly. This room was the kind of place she could stay forever. It was good to meet you both, and, well, all the best with those targets. She made her way to the front door. Miss Brown? Queenie paused when she heard the tall man's voice, but couldn't bring herself to turn around. You know, you don't have to talk yourself into falling in love, he said, but perhaps you might stop talking yourself out of it. I'll think about it, Queenie called back as she pulled the door open and stepped back out into the world. After that, life went on for Queenie Brown. Slowly she started to make some changes. She sold the catering business and stopped reviewing so many scientific papers and took up tango lessons. And every now and again she'd think about Mr Small's words. She thought about them as she drank tea with her niece and she thought about them when she looked at herself in the mirror, and she thought about them every time she walked under the railway bridge and passed the blue door she'd never noticed was there. Perhaps I could stop talking myself out of it, she said to herself on more than one of these occasions, and perhaps one day that's exactly what Queenie Brown will do. So that was The Department of Unrequited Love. Quite a long story, that one. So thanks for sticking with it. If um, indeed you have done, I'm assuming that's what's happened if you are listening to this. There are three things I wanted to quickly mention about this story. And the first thing to say is that it actually used to be even longer Uh, so the version you've just heard is a bit over five pages long it used to be a good six and a half pages long but I took an early version of the story to my writing group and every single person in that group very politely pointed out to me quite rightly that the story didn't actually start until about halfway down the second page That's quite a common problem for writers, I think. It sometimes can take us a while to work out what it is we're actually writing about and to get to the heart of the story. So I got rid of the first page and a half and essentially all I got rid of was a whole pile of Queenie's backstory, which was essentially just me having a good old rant about unrequited love and how valuable those love affairs of hers were. But as my writing group pointed out, readers and listeners are clever people and they don't need to be hit over the head with that. They certainly don't need a page and a half of me having a good old rant about that before I actually get round to telling them the story. So it all went. Although I I'm embarrassed to say I did later catch myself trying to again squeeze in a very condensed version of that first page and a half by giving it to Mr Symington, one of the two men, as a little speech towards the end of the story. So I had to go back and 
take that out as well. Speaking of Mr. Simington and Mr. Small, the two men, um, the second thing to say is that I made a deliberate choice not to use their names very much for most of the story. So the names are mentioned at the top and then they are referred to as the tall man and the short man almost the whole way through. And that is, in hindsight, just a very, very, very long, slightly clunky setup for what ends up being a not particularly funny joke. So there's a scene towards the end where Queenie gets them muddled up and thinks the small man is Mr. Small when in fact it's the tall man who's called Mr. Small, which really isn't that funny and I don't think the payoff is worth the amount of clunky writing which gets us there. So I suspect that might end up going, even though it greatly amused me at the time. I have a sneaking suspicion it doesn't amuse anybody else quite as much. Uh, speaking of things which amused me as I wrote them, brings me to the third thing I wanted to talk about, and that is one particular line early on in the story, during the section where Queenie has taken up a whole ridiculous raft of hobbies to fill in her free time. And it's a line where she plays lots of golf and a bit of poker and Snow White in the local dramatic society's Christmas pantomime, a line I was very proud of when I wrote it. That isn't something I say very often or say very lightly, but I did like it and one of the reasons I like it and one of the reasons I wanted to mention it was in case there are any other word geeks listening, it is a technique which has a name. It is called Sylepsis, S-Y-L-L-E-P-S-I-S. -S -S. It's a technique where you take a word, so in this case the word played, and you deliberately apply it in two or more very different ways. It's something which always makes me laugh when I come across it in other people's writing and so it was a deliberate decision. I was delighted to then find out there was a proper name for the term. I read about it in a book called The Elements of Eloquence by Mark Forsyth, which if that is the kind of thing you are into, weird a linguistic quirkiness. Uh, it's really worth the read. The table of contents is just a thing of joy. I will put a photo of it on the Twitter feed um, because it just is a delight if you are as big a word geek as I am. He has a whole section on sylepsis, sylepsises, I'm not quite sure what the plural would be, but um, yes, he gives lots of great examples of them, including an incredible example of a sylepsis which uses nine different meanings of the word took. Uh, apparently written by a journalist who says, a shocking affair occurred last night. Sir Edward Hopeless, as a guest at Lady Panmore's ball, complained of feeling ill, took a highball, his hat, his coat, his departure, no notice of his friends, a taxi, a pistol from his pocket, and finally his life. 
Other examples are things like he fell into bed and fast asleep uh, or one which Charles Dickens used, Mr Pickwick took his hat and his leave. If you want to read more about them, there is a great chapter in Mark Forsyth's book. That is it for this week. As always, if you would like to get in touch, I would love to hear from you. You can do that via Twitter. I'm at Raw Stories Pod, uh, or send me an email at rawstoriespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. As always, I will see you again in a fortnight for another Raw Story. Mm-hmm.